Hello, this is Russell Davis with The Art of Artists, this time welcoming a star who I'd say has become steadily, sometimes unsteadily, more of an artist as the 50 years of her career have advanced. It's Marianne Faithful, once very glibly stereotyped as a 60s dolly, almost accidentally included in the history of British rock. I'm expecting her to resist any summary of that kind very strongly. And why shouldn't she? Since her latest studio album is her 20th and her current project is a world tour that'll take a year to complete. <laughs> Marianne, welcome. Thank uh, you. Families, uh, joining in with families... You've said this, it have always been important to you. and, and Well, it was when I was younger. I mean, I'm very glad I'm not in a family now. Yes. I'm completely the opposite. <laughs> but your family background is full of amazing stories and sometimes distressing stories about Mm-mm. individuals, but it, ended up, it added up to a, a pretty fractured family. Well, I have no idea what a real family is. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, I got as close as I could probably. I mean, I'm, I quite like... Uh, all my family actually is now. It's just Nicholas and his children and his wife. Yes. That's fine. Uh-huh. Your father was an academic in Italian literature. I knew a lot mm. of those mm. at one stage. Because and they're, they're a curious tribe in themselves, actually, Italian, Italian academics, I think. They are, aren't they? Mm. Yeah, I, I... My third husband was the son of the professor of uh, comparative literature at Harvard. Uh-huh who was also a Dante scholar. Yes. But your father had also been an army man and a spy. Uh, and your mother came from the Zacher Mazach, uh, oh, yeah, a middle a European clan. Family, yeah. <laughs> she was not quite as aristocratic as she made out. Is that right? Is well, that what emerged from that? She didn't have a title, no. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the title was actually Ritter von Zacher Mazach, which means rider. From, uh, yes. which is like night. It's night, isn't it? Yes, yes, yes. yes. She, but she wasn't a baroness, no. Uh-huh. She'd been a dancer in mm. Berlin. Mm. She'd actually lived that cabaret life that all the shows mm. and songs very try, try to too. recreate. She was a very good dancer. Yes. Did she tell you much? Did she talk about no, that? No, never. Nothing. What a shame. Mm. Did she not want you to know? Did, did you feel she was actually hiding? I think hiding? she hated it ah. after the war. I think she was obviously very happy in Weimar Berlin and her career was brilliant and, in fact, she'd just been offered a Hollywood film test. She was very beautiful. Yes. And I, when I was young, could not understand why she didn't just take that and go to Hollywood and leave it all, you know. Mm. And she would always say, I couldn't leave my family. Mm. But I wouldn't have been like that. But she did come that close to, to actually go. When did music start for you then? Wasn't there, wasn't there a theory there that you were going to be... There was music in my life. My father played the guitar and had the most beautiful voice. Yeah. Um, he was Welsh, of course. That, that goes yeah, a long way. there was that side to yeah. him, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and he... So I, I, I mean, I remember here sitting under the greenwood tree in the new forest with my dad singing green sleeves to me when I was a little girl. Yeah. And classical music I loved very much. Well, wasn't there a theory that in your teenage years you were going to be a trained contralto, I suppose? it was. Well, no. I mean, they thought I would be a contralto, but at the time, if I'd gone to music school and I'd never, never met Andrew Oldham, and I wish I never had... Yeah. <laughs> um, I really probably might have gone to the Guildhall or or, or the um, Royal Academy of Music, and I would have had a perfect voice for, for Mozart. Yes. But as I got older, 
what my teachers thought was that they're, they're, they're always in hushed tones, you know, if you're very lucky, very, very lucky, maybe you'll become a contralto. And I did. One thing that emerged as soon as you started giving interviews like this, 50 mm. years ago, um, was how well-read you are. I mean, Balzac <laughs> and, uh, and Baudelaire and then were no strangers to you at that well, age. That, that changed, you know. I mean, now there are a lot of people who know their Rambo and their Baudelaire as well as anyone. Not that many, I would Well, no, not that And many. certainly not in the pop world. Well, no. Patti Smith, mm. Bob Dylan. Well, yes, mm. yes. We'll, we'll come on to him. But uh, in terms of poets, a slight leaning towards doom, was there? I mean, it would be Swinburne uh, rather was, than Tennyson. Swinburne is so terrible, isn't he? Yes. Yeah, and you have to be very young and very silly to like Swinburne. Mm. I can't understand why I like Swinburne. But I, I, I mean, I didn't, it wasn't all just dire. Yeah, I really, my father really turned me on to William Blake mm. when I was very young. I, you know, I that lovely book with the pictures, you know, perfect for a clever little girl. I loved I loved William Blake, and I yeah. still love William Blake. And a great but, inspiration to lyricists, because he's not strictly logical. He doesn't go in a prosy way from point to point. He, oh. He makes those leaps which songs do. Ah. Don't you think? Yes, songs of innocence and experience. Yes, of course. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I liked Baudelaire, and I liked... Um, I very much like romanticism. Yes. Yeah. I never mentioned the writing team behind us, Tears Go By, which was, of course, Mick Jagger, Keith Richard, as he was billed in those days, yeah. briefly, and uh, Andrew Oldham, the manager of Well, Andrew says he... Well, exactly, yes. I don't think but he, he had he anything sort of, to do Didn't he lock them up and make them write it or something? Yeah, so he took a so credit. So he took a credit for that, that. yeah. yeah so he, spotted, he spotted you, this is marvellous for me, at Adrian Poster's party. I'd, I did a TV series with Aid a thousand years ago, so I feel, yes. <laughs> you know... She's kind of sweet, connected. wasn't she? She yeah. was, yes. Yeah. All three of those, Keith, Mick and Mr Oldham, are still with us, I think. Mm, very much so, yeah. Uh, in spite of many opportunities to depart. Uh, Oldham must have been a... <laughs> he must have been a really expert bluffer, in a way, because he produced the Stones and you through those years, but he had no previous experience. And they say... Well, none of it, nobody did. And his musical input was nil. No I mean, one it, had any, any No, experience. but they knew. Phil Spector had no experience. Well, he couldn't showed, have done yes. any of that without Jack Nietzsche and the rest. Yes. Yeah. And Phil was was Andrew's model, you know. Mm. He didn't have anything to do. And that's what I love about pop music and always did, that you did not have to be qualified at yeah. all. Mm. You just did it. And that's what we did. Yes. Mm. Your influence uh, went further probably than you knew at the time. Paul McCartney once said that Here, There and Everywhere, a famous Beatles song, after all, yeah. was his Marianne Faithful imitation. <laughs> did, did he tell well, you that? Paul is a friend of mine. And yeah. Yeah, I don't know. It's imagined. I mean, Paul is very good with a clever line. I've never believed But any I think of this. he said it, you know, you weren't present and he wasn't trying to flatter you or anything, so it just came out. But it's magic. But he it's is a friend of thinking. mine. Yeah. And has been a friend of mine all my life, mm. really, mm. since I was 17. How different is the experience of making records today? Because I want to do an unusual thing and bring the story up to date now, not wanting mm. to rush it later. Mm. Uh, I suppose the big difference is that everybody thinks in albums now, rushing a single out is urgently. That's the old-fashioned well, way Well, apparently that's things. about to change. Oh. Well, I th well I'm going to change. <laughs> anyway, um, 
you know, I, it's been it's it's lovely making an album because it's a long and interesting winding piece. Yeah. But what is also nice, I would like to do next and will do, is an EP. I always liked EPs. I always That's liked the EPs. first things I bought were all EPs. All you, me too. Yeah. Um, and you know, an album is so expensive to do, and it's yeah. so, so long to put it together. Yes. And I had all that time because of breaking my back. But um, there's something about four tracks that makes that they I bounce don't know. off. I'm one going to try better. that out anyway. Oh, that would be fascinating mm. to see an AP after all this time. Can you be bothered with the technological side of it, or is simplicity easier in, in your I mind? know a lot about the technological side of it, actually. Do you I, sort of interfere with that? I sat, sat next to Paul McCartney and in all those Rolling Stone sessions for years, and it all just sort of went in slowly. Yeah. I know all about it. But do you interfere with it, or do you let him get on with it? No, I do interfere with it. Yes. As we speak, your album, uh, Give My Love to London, is yet to emerge, but mm. it will. I've heard it, and I've heard well in advance that it was a great album. Your 20th, I think, <laughs> in the studio. Did you put special care into this with the choice of collaborators and so on, or is it a case of ever-growing maturity? It's a case of ever-growing maturity. This, this is a beautiful, mature record. Mm. And uh, I think that's one of the reasons it's so good. You've written most of the lyrics to these songs, but the, the one you've chosen is Nick Cave's song, um, yeah. The Late Victorian Holocaust. Oh, it's such a great song. Written specially for you. Mm. An extraordinary song, yes. Tell us Late about Victorian the song. Late Victorian Holocaust? Yes. Well, it's a song about being a junkie in London. And one of the things that's so interesting about it is that, you know, being, being a heroin addict in London, you were never waiting for your man, like Lou Reed and Velvet Underground in New York. You were running after your man desperately, trying to keep up with them, and that's what Nick has caught in this in this song. Right. The sort of franticness of always having to sort of, you know, you get a little bit of respite because you get high, and then yes. off you go again. You know? yeah. yes. and it's just brilliant. Yes. And are you going to catch up with it at all? I mean, as, as what, a, with, another with the question. guy you score for? The guy, oh, yeah, yeah, of course yeah. you do. Yeah, eventually. Yeah. Eventually, yeah. but uh, no, this eventually, a, maybe a mythical song. This is a yes, real. Yeah. It's about a real thing. Mm -hmm. And of course, every six hours you have to. Yes. You have to get them. Yeah. Mm. What about the album "Give My Love to London"? We've learned to. Uh, Suspect irony everywhere. Irony. What, what, what layers Sarcasm, are involved there? Yes, yes. Yeah. You've had some pretty lousy times in London, but uh, oh, yeah. and you've made many escapes from it. How do you feel about it now? Well, I'm really glad I don't have to live here. Yeah, I'm very glad. But of course, I love England. I'm. I always will. I, I have an, a sort of illusion about it. I suppose you know, this jewel set in a silver sea, this yeah. England. Yeah. So. These terrible things that are happening, like at the moment, you know, really kind of upset me terribly. As sort of so depraved and so not not my England. When you consider what, say, Billie Holiday sounded like at the end of her career, having done much <laughs> the same things, you got away extremely well. Yeah, but I stopped a long time ago, mm. and I'd stopped smoking actually ten months ago. Uh huh. But she ended up with a voice that wasn't even melodious. It was. It really well, was a poor crack. darling. Yeah, I know. Yeah. Yes. 
but um, that I'm very lucky. I escaped much quicker than she did. And you couldn't get angry, as angry with the world as you are in parts of this album, mm. with a 50-year-older version of the voice we heard in As Tears Go By. It just wouldn't... I mean, weight of I experience is weight. Well, you... When I did As Tears Go By. No, 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 that's yeah, what I mean. There was and no I, anger in there. No, no, but yeah. nowadays there's anger in this album, so, which well, you need a weighty I, voice I'm not for. angry all the time, but no. I must say, when I broke my back, when I broke my sacrum, which is sort of highly symbolic, <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, there I was, sort of for six months flat on my back in my bed. Yes. In terrible pain... I thought to myself, this is a moment where I can now really say what I think about things. Yeah. And I will. And I was also, because I had nothing else to do, I was reading an awful lot. And, um, I mean, the music I listen to doesn't change, and never really has, except that I've got more and more into jazz. Uh-huh. So there I was, playing John Coltrane, reading... And watching movies on uh, the old movie channel on my television. My very nice new television, yeah. Which period of Coltrane do you like best? That's a pet subject of mine. Um, these fav- my favourite things. Yeah. To that blue record. Yeah. Extraordinary song to pick. But, but I, I, I do like a lot of them, you know. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I wouldn't say I have a favourite period, really. Let's go back to the time when you were still wielding voice one, the tears go by voice, and consorting so intimately with the, with the Rolling Stones about whom you write fascinatingly in your first autobiography because the groupness of them disguised so many power struggles and unspoken yeah, dominations and subservience. Because of my father, because you know? of Brazier's part, because of yes. School for Integrative Social Living and all that. <laughs> yes. I, you know, group the group mind. That's what my father was all about. And I, I knew about all that. And so I kind of just got it. Yes. I, 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 it was horrible to be involved, to be there. I, I wish I hadn't been. It was horrible. But I knew what was going on. At times they didn't. And so you, you were better mm. able to tell what was happening than possibly they were as the... No, they didn't know. They didn't know. No. I mean, they knew they knew some things, but they didn't know everything. It's comical how much Mick and Keith, and at that stage, though, decliningly, Brian Jones as well, but they blot out the others. I think Bill Wyman has mentioned once in, in your book thing. where he, I think even then you are saying that he might just as well have been a, a pick-up bass player hired, hired to do Well, tours. no, but I mean, I'm very mean and I yeah. shouldn't have said that. No. Because but, uh, actually, Bill Wyman was a very good bass player, is still a very good bass player. Yeah. But I don't um, think Charlie Watts is mentioned at all. In, in my in, book? In that book. I can't remember one. Well, I mean, that's wrong of me. I love Charlie and he's somebody I still see. I know, yeah. you have. Yes. Um, and I go down, when he was used to play at Ronnie Scott's, I would go and see him. His heart has been in jazz sort of all along, oh, yeah, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, you know, I, I don't say anything about Charlie because it was very much this little group. Yes. I'm not writing about the group, the Rolling Stones, you know. I'm writing my story yes. and they are bit players in it. Sure. They're not important. Mm. 
<laughs> to me. Well, the figure who to the young now is least known, to the point of being disregarded in the history, is Brian Jones. If he'd pulled himself out of that spiral he was in somehow, I don't know how... He couldn't have. have. But if he had, if he'd re-established himself musically, would it have made any material difference to the history of the Stones? No. No, no, no. no. I mean, he w- Alexis Corner's idea was really good, you know, that Brian just go and be a blues player. Mm. And do that, and yeah. stop trying to be a Rolling Stone. Uh-huh. It wasn't, it just wasn't what he what he wanted at mm. all. He wanted the power, but he didn't didn't like the music. Clearly, the police raid at Redlands, Keith Richards's place, mm. was the most famous incident of its kind in that whole era. And for it's those the to beginning whom this, of the end for me. Yes. Well, to those for whom this shorthand means nothing, it was the occasion when the force walked in on a scene featuring some stones, some art dealers. You dressed in a rug, but it was an enormous Naked in a huge fur rug. Could have covered the And, of course, I mean, if you know my background, if you know anything about Venus in Pelts and Leopold's Hamazo, it's... Of course I was dressed, I was naked in a fur rug. I got out of the bath, I didn't have anything else to wear. I put on this huge fur rug and I was unconsciously doing my genetic job. Yes. Very beautiful, naked in a fur rug. Venus in furs, yes. Mm. Yes. But somehow that occasion got through to everybody Mm. who was young at the time, including those who would have run a mile from any house that had, you know, drugs in it and so on. It's Uh, quite an image. And it was very, very... I was very naughty, the way I I did it, you know, the way I played it. mm. Because uh, because they were so stupid (laughs) when the cops said... Um, this faithful couldn't the woman policeman there was a, there was a woman there uh-huh. she has to take you upstairs because she has to search you and I started laughing and I which of course you don't do that's one thing you're not meant to do and the other thing I went up the stairs about five stairs and dropped the rug and said go on search me and it was very naughty to do that I don't know that you had much choice. I mean, you just had the I rug. I was funny. <laughs> it was very funny. But it was still, I was acting out. I was being very sort of, you know. Yes. And it didn't help Keith at all, you know, because what their whole case was built on the fact that nobody, no lady, or no young lady who wasn't on drugs would do that, you know, not taking Leopold into consideration mm. at all. Mm. Or my character. I didn't need drugs to behave like that. I was like that. I was a show-off and I was naturally naughty and uh, that's the sort of thing I love to do. Prosecutions came out of it and sentences and then those were quashed and all that, but the point had been made, I Well, suppose. I was made into the... I mean, it was yeah. just awful what they did to me. Mm. And I'll never get over it. <laughs> mm. Ever. You know, I've had friends like Eddie Izzard what, has tried to talk to me about it and talk me through it, you know, mm. try and get me to see it as as funny mm. and not not so awful. But I can't. I just can't. Was it also the beginning of you being thought of as a victim of rock and roll and the big bag well, monsters? Well, I suppose it was. Yeah, and that's an interpretation which you've always been resistant to, angrily resistant. Of course I'm not a victim. No. I mean, in some ways I was, of course, in that Miss X nonsense. Yeah, yeah. You know, but... Um, 
But you... and, I, and, and unfortunately, I took it so seriously that I went and lived on the street and became a heroin addict. You yes. know, I, I, I wasn't at mm. all like that before that. I wasn't a drug addict. But after all that and being told how evil I was, like the most evil woman in the 60s, you know, probably more evil than Myra Hindley. Mm. Notoriously, you had sexual entanglements with three Rolling Stones, that's sort of obligatory oh, to say. Very, and, very and, and one or two creeps, but one that you did turn down was, was Bob Dylan. Um, well, I was engaged, I was pregnant, and I was about to get married mm. to John. I couldn't, couldn't get my head around that at all, you know. You wrote very fascinatingly about the ways in which he was available <laughs> and yet instantly withdrawable. Um, a, more, a more calculating presence, it's hard well, to yeah, imagine. Well, yeah, but that's typical rock star behaviour. Mm. I didn't know, but that's how I learned. Yeah. And he remained keen, you met years later, and well, a lot, many keen, things had happened. exactly, but we stayed fond of each other. We're yeah. still fond of each other. Sister Morphine, a, a title that in the atmosphere of those times was bound to attract a lot of attention. It's a lot not of, about a lot me of misinterpretation. At all. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's, a, it's a real story. It's hospital medication we're talking about, yeah, for one thing. Exactly. Yes, yeah. yes. Yeah. In a man spite has of had that, an accident. He's in hospital, and he wants he wants to, to to get this thing that will take the pain away. Yeah. In spite of that, the decor record company took, uh, took fright at your version of the song. but uh, Because I was a woman. They didn't mind when the Stones recorded it. Exactly. Yes, yes. You ask me why I'm angry. Mm. Ah. It was originally credited to Faithful Jagger and Richards, which is right, isn't it? But there was some dispute about that later on. Didn't you have to re-establish your rights to the yes, song? I did, yes. I had to take it to court and yeah. it had to be organised and it has been. There's a track on there. 1971 album, Sticky Fingers, but by that time, its co-writer, Marianne Faithful, was on the edge of falling into a long and horrible time, your mm. life as a street person. Not that long. It was about three years. Long time to be in St Anne's Court with nothing to do. Well, I wasn't in St Anne's Court all the time. <laughs> I, went, I went and lived in a squat later on and yeah. all sorts of places, yeah. yeah. But I was on heroin for about two and a half years. Yes. Mm. Mick Jagger had got married. He'd married himself, as you put it in the book. <laughs> uh, I, there was a strange fictional ideal wrapped up in that Soho business too, wasn't it? Because there was William, William Burroughs. William Burroughs' oh, that's idea me, of yes. Street poor, life. poor William. Yeah. And years later, when we became very good friends, I made an appointment to see him for bre at breakfast time and I asked him about it. You know, I said, so why? Why did I read The Naked Lunch and think I had to go and live like that? And he just said, well, you know, please. It, but it, it was fiction and it was not for you. But I didn't get that, I thought. I thought it was a great idea. I couldn't stand where I was. Mm. I thought, I think... Living on the streets got to be better than this. Yeah. And in a way it was, because it's where I really learnt that people are good. There are, there are very kind people around. Mm. And but the world I had been living in was completely false and dreadful. Sure, yes. But you were out there, my idea of a long time anyway, hiding in plain sight, as the Americans say, and nobody came and fetched you out of there. Well, uh, no, no, I had a couple of friends who came to see me. Um, I had Francis Bacon, who would come and take me to lunch occasionally at Wheeler's, because I was also terribly thin. Yeah. 
and uh, Brian Geisen, who was a great, great friend of Burroughs, yeah. who, who would just come to see if I was OK. Well, Francis Bacon would be passing by anyway. Yeah, he, he that's did, did exactly die. what happened. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. But I wasn't giving out my address. <laughs> <laughs> when you got back, um, you in the end, you had to do what you'd never done, never had to do in the 60s, which was to go around the record companies to see, you know, if there were any takers. You sort of, sort of started again, in mm. a way. And there well, were, you know, there were... I do love it. Yeah. I love singing and I love making records and I love performing. Do you think it was when you started writing again that you realised that you know, no, I really don't. Self-respect and control had returned. I think it's very simple. You know, it's all I can do. Yeah, seventies were pretty, pretty grim on and well, off. Well, right yes and no. To... You know, I did write broken English. Well, I, well, that's what I'm saying. We're working towards, of course, broken English. So I can't I... say they were all that no. bad. No, it was dated 1979, but you've been working on that with a, uh, with a band. Started in 1977. Seven, yes, with a band, so you had worked it up. Well, with people. Yes. Yeah. The Ballad of Lucy Jordan, mm. Shel Silverstein song that I, I, I think Doctor Hook and the Medicine Band had mm. visited it anyway a few years. No, ago. no, no. They were the first people yeah. to record. If I'm reading it correctly, it's a sort of near-suicide song. It's a save just no, in time song. No, it's not. No, no, that's how... Because it was me, it was read like that. It's not suicide. She goes to a lunatic asylum. But she's on the roof when she gets... Yeah, I remember, yeah. But away. she's brought down from the roof, put into the long white car and driven away to the lunatic asylum. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, if they, I suppose, you know, she could have just gone up there and jumped. That's a possibility. Yeah. But that's not what the song is saying. One thing uh, you were now enabled to do was to plug back into the European side of your origins through the works of... Bertolt Brecht and, and Kurt Weill. Much Weyer. later. Yeah. I yeah. had to sort of really get... I mean, I had to take advantage of broken English and, and yes. make more records. And then it started to change, really, after I went to treatment and got up completely clean. Yes. And I made Strange Weather with Hal Wilner, mm. who became a very good friend of mine. And it was through Hal that I was really started to listen... I mean, the Kurt Weill, Bertolt Brecht thing was always in my life because of who I am. Mm -hmm. But I'd never occurred that I could sing that, you know. Yeah. But Hal thought I could, and that's how it happened. I've always liked Weill's music because it's sort of jazz, but it's imperfectly absorbed it's very, by, by very much European, jazz, yeah. European Jewish ear. Yeah. Uh, and there was a Jewish element in your the, background. He wrote on the... On the, um, it's a different scale, you know. Mm. It's the temple. Yes. From the music of the temple. Yes, yes. Synagogue music, yes. Mm. And although you hadn't really been exposed to that, there was a it's Jewish in element my blood. in the background. That's yes. it. It's like the fur rug. You and know? do you think it was woken it, up? By, you, you don't yeah. think it's there, but it is there. Yeah. Because I had a lot of people say, I was terribly offended at the time, how come you can sing this stuff? Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought, I, eventually I thought about it and I thought, it must be in my blood. Mm -hmm. Kurt Weill died in 1950 at the age of only 50. Great loss to all kinds of music, I think. But moving on to a song written by someone born the year after that, 51. It's a song with the alluring title Marathon Kiss. Marathon Kiss uh, is a song that was written by Daniel Lanois who I made a record with called Vagabond Ways, and uh, Emmy Lou, 
Harris. Emmylou Harris. And um, he gave it to me to sing. And, and I will actually be doing Marathon Kiss on the tour. And it feels as if you wrote it, which must be a good <laughs> sign in a collaboration. Well, it's not me. It's <laughs> Dan. But I love Dan, you know, and I, I'd, I'd work with him again in a hot second. The vagabond ways of what you've had in the present century. Mm. You've lived an international life, been a lot of touring, and there's That's about to be more. That's a good way of putting it, international <laughs> life. <laughs> And there's about to be more touring, and yeah. a huge one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. World tour, in fact. Well, we'll see. Yeah. <laughs> Starting in Europe. For the moment, it's, it's Europe. But it could last a year. Yeah, I think it will last a year. Whether it goes on is another matter, I'm not sure. All those hotels, can you stand that part of it? I hate travelling. Yeah. You could sign yourself in now, I gather, as the Baroness von Sacherwaldoch. But th that title has come through that. to you, but you've I'm never not, used it. I mean, that would be nonsense. Mm. I don't know if I even could legally. I don't know if that's true. Uh, but anyway, it's not necessary because I'm actually Marianne Faithful. Indeed. Mm. Yes. It doesn't get any grander than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, very good luck with the tour. Go carefully, no broken bones. No, I thank you. I will be very careful. Mm. And I will be also be very careful not to sort of die on the road because it's so hard. I, I You know, we'll see mm. where I go. I'll do this, what I've been committed to do, and then we'll see. Right. Marianne Faithful, thank you very much for this conversation, which makes up for the one we might have had in a Cambridge uh, college garden 50 years ago. Oh, darling. I can't give you all my dreams, nor the life I live, sang Marianne Faithful, and that's the truth of it. But I think we're all a bit better informed now on both those topics. That was a bracing conversation with, I like to think, a unique flavour. Because, as you heard, she didn't get where she is today by being a non-combatant or by accepting any journalistic shortcuts. My thanks to her and to my producer, Sarah Cropper. This was a Wise Buddha production for BBC Radio 2, online, on digital radio and on 88 to 91 FM.